novel to me is a baggier thing. You have more room to make mistakes, you have space for descriptions, and you have to describe because you're creating an image in your words for the reader's mind. Whereas the picture book, that's what the illustrator's doing. Before an illustrator can get to work on a book, the book has to be written. And that's no small feat in and of itself. But what type of book are you going to write? A true story about your hero or a fantastical world of elves and monsters? Literature created from the imagination is classified as fiction. Literature based in fact is classified as nonfiction. Sometimes the line between fiction and nonfiction gets a bit fuzzy. Fiction books can contain true events, characters, and facts. Nonfiction books can be written using fiction techniques. In this bonus episode, author and illustrator Marissa Moss walks us through her process of creating nonfiction literature for children and young adults. For example, with her book, Nurse Soldier Spy. So Nurse Soldier Spy is the picture book about Sarah Emma Edmonds, who is one of 400 women who dressed as men and fought in the Civil War on one side or the other. She's particularly interesting because she is the only woman who, after the war, through two different acts of Congress, received a pension. So she was acknowledged as a Civil War vet and was buried in a military cemetery. So she's the only official woman's veteran, and she happened to write her own memoir. So she was an absolutely fabulous source. And besides being a soldier, she was a battlefield nurse and a spy, which, as you can imagine, she'd be very good at because she was a woman dressed as a man, dressed as a woman for some of her missions. So the picture book version, I took one mission, the first mission she did as a spy. And that is completely true, although, of course, I have to invent dialogue and her thoughts. But the historical fiction, which is the young adult novel I did, is based on her memoir and Almost all of the events are true until the very end. I changed the ending, the very last bit, for writerly reasons. And the trick with historical fiction, and actually with nonfiction as well, is that the story has to trump the history. You're, especially when you're writing for kids, you have to make it interesting. So whenever there's a bit of historical stuff that gets in the way, that's what I use the author's note for. Because you're doing a lot of research, and you find out all these cool things that are just like little gems, and you really love them, but they may not belong in the book because they slow things down or you know that the art is going to show them, so don't mention it by name. So it's basically a balancing act with a picture book. You've got to keep your reader's attention, stay true to the history, and then whatever can't fit there, you stick in the back. And that keeps it true nonfiction. Sometimes her work spawns something greater than a picture book alone. The text can take on a life of its own, sometimes even growing into a novel. Marissa explains how the text needs to be handled when it takes on a greater role in a book. That's the crucial thing about writing picture books, is you have to give your illustrator space to work. So your words should be limited to what the pictures can't do. And that's, I think, a big part of writing for pictures, writing for picture books, is that you have to, first of all, have a visual text, something that, that the illustrator can work with, and then you can't overwrite. If it's too heavy and too long, then you're boring your reader. And anyway, that's what the art does. So basically, anything that's a description, you take out. Anything that is, there's a lot of, L-Y words, adverbs that you just, that shouldn't be in your writing anyway because that's just a crutch. Basically, you should have juicy verbs so that you don't have to say spoke softly, you say whispered, that kind of thing. I mean, that's just kind of writing 1A. But you, a picture book is like a poem. Every word counts. So you've got to pick your words carefully. A novel to me is a baggier thing. You have more room to make mistakes. You have space for descriptions and you have to describe because you're creating an image in your words for the reader's mind. Whereas the picture book, that's what the illustrator is doing. And you basically have to trust your illustrator. A lot of picture book writers think that the illustrator is there 
to, as a kind of hand to do exactly what's in the writer's mind, and that's absolutely not the right idea. The illustrators are to interpret the text and then make something bigger and different than what the writer could picture, because generally writers aren't artists. If you're an author and an illustrator, then you know how illustrators work, but if you are an author, you have to trust your illustrator. They'll, they'll do something much better than you could ever imagine. When working with illustrators or just on the text alone, writers are always faced with the task of editing, what to leave in and what to leave out. And of course, getting to the heart of the story itself. Marissa explains. That's the big question. And that really is because you, for me, when I'm starting research on one of these books, I read very widely, meaning like for this, Nurse Soldier Spy, I started by reading, I, I knew I was going to do something about the Civil War, but I didn't know if it was going to be a man or a woman, a girl or a boy, North or South. So I start by reading a huge amount about the Civil War. And then I narrowed it down when I learned about all these women who are fighting in the Civil War to one of these women. And I started by looking at, I think, a dozen. And what I wanted was a woman who was fighting for the right reason. Because a lot of the women were there because their fathers were there, their brothers, their husbands, their boyfriends. So they were there as companions to someone they loved. And I wanted someone who actually thought that this was a cause she believed in. And Sarah Emma Edmonds is one of the few, and it's interesting because she happens to be Canadian, but who totally believed that the Union should stand and that slavery was a horrible evil that shouldn't be allowed to exist. So she, was, she fit the bill. She had all the right reasons for me to write about her. So then once I narrowed it down to her, then I'm doing a lot of research about the battle she's in and the other soldiers because she had her own memoir that she wrote and published shortly after the, it was towards the end of the war, which was a huge bestseller at the time, which nobody knows about now, called Unsexed, um, A Soldier in the Army. And she never refers to herself as a woman. The title's the only hint. But there are also, you can read the journals of the soldiers who served with her and the letters that they wrote on her behalf, attesting to her bravery when it was time to petition Congress for her to be officially recognized as a veteran and to get a pension. So there's a ton of research that goes into it, and you end up being very, you can end up really precious about it. It's a problem. I mean, I find that you have to, it, for me, a historical book like this, it takes a lot longer because I have to step away from the history. Because in the end, as I said before, the story is first. And it usually takes several, several iterations before you can step away and say, okay, now the history is in my blood and bones, and I don't have to think about it. I don't have to look at my notes so much. I can just write the story that needs to be told. And you have to stay true to the facts because these are books that are used in courses. If a teacher's going to use them or a librarian, and a student, they want to be able to rely on the veracity of this book. So I'm very careful about the accuracy, but at the same time, I'm writing it as a story first, which means thinking about characters, thinking about setting scenes, thinking about dialogue, thinking about drama, all the stuff that you do in any story. But then you have to shove out the historical stuff that can get in the way. You have to pick and choose the stuff that fits your story you're telling. So for Nurse Soldier Spy, I'm telling her first spy mission. So I want to talk about how she gets chosen as a spy, how she chooses to do this and what kind of courage it took, and then her resolution, what this meant for her as a person. So you basically have a narrative, emotional narrative arc. And whatever feeds that arc, you keep in. And what distracts from it, you have to take out. I tend to choose one pivotal episode. I know some authors use this strategy to tell the whole life. But in a picture book, I feel that kind of dilutes the story. And you lose a lot of narrative drive that way. After you have made your edits, you still are going to want to mention some key facts or give some clarification to the story. As Marissa explains, this is where the author's notes come in. The author's note to me is the catch-all for all those historical nuggets that you loved when you were doing your research but don't fit in with the book. So if they slow down the narrative and they're going to drag it down but you really want it there, 
that's where it goes. And for me, the author's note often takes as long to write as the book because you're crafting a story and you want to make it so that kids will want to read it. And certainly, I know teachers and librarians read it if nobody else does, but I think the curious kid does as well. So you have a responsibility to make that. It's a kind of story. It's not, it can't be boring. An author's note has to be interesting. But you've got all that juicy, interesting stuff there, so there's your chance to use it. Research is, of course, the key to a good story. It is how your story, or your illustration, gains authenticity. Marissa has a favorite place to start the process. Uh, one of my favorite sources is the Library of Congress, because they have a digital archive now where you can see photographs and prints and plans and pamphlets and broadsides. There's an incredible amount of stuff that you can see online. If you can go to the library, that's even better. But for example, I have a book I'm working on now, which is about the other tea parties, because we all know about the Boston Tea Party, but there were actual tea parties in Philadelphia and Charleston and New York at the same time, because the British were actually trying to blanket the East Coast with tea so that the colonists would definitely buy it. Um, so we don't know about those things, so we should. So I went to the New York, um, the New York Historical Society and just spent an afternoon looking at broadsheets, broad which are like the posters of the day and are an incredible font of information. And then I spent another day just looking at old-fashioned microfiche reading. You can read newspapers from the 1700s, which was incredible because you not only see the headlines, you could see the classified ads, the weather, what they're thinking about. That to me was, gave me really sense of, a sense of context. And that stuff doesn't go in the book, but it goes in my head. And I know now what they're thinking about and what's on their mind that in, kind of imbues itself into the text. And so some of that stuff gets put into the author's note. I put in a lot of resources so that teachers can use them. Or for example, I have a book, I have a time travel series, Mira's Diary, where there's historical stuff when she goes back to the past that's all historically accurate. Although obviously people don't really time travel, so that part's invented. But the most recent one, Bombs Over London, takes place in World War I London. And for that, you can see newsreels of the Zeppelins dropping the bombs. And you can, it's amazing. I thought I didn't realize, you don't realize how early photography was invented, but you can actually see traffic work going in circles in London. So you can see what the vehicles look like. And they were this weird hybrid of steam engines, steam driven, horse driven, gasoline driven, diesel driven. It's like, I thought, I thought it was like the primordial soup of evolution happening with vehicles that the gasoline engine won out. But that, I wouldn't have gotten that if I hadn't seen the newsreels. So to me, Thanks to the internet, there's a huge amount of visual information you can get that is just as useful as reading books. With your brain full of ideas and storylines comes perhaps the hardest part of writing a story, especially something based in reality. The issue of character development and finding the voice of the character. Character development is tough because when you're dealing especially with the past, then you have to make that character accurate for the time. You can't have them saying things that they wouldn't say, and you can't have them thinking things they wouldn't think. It's called historical context. You have to really be, um, you have to kind of check your present-oriented thinking and kind of live in, that time, live in that time zone. So when I'm doing a historical book, my outside reading, my reading for leisure, will be reading from that period because it's part of helping me stay in character because that's what my character will be thinking about. So if I'm doing something like in 19th century London, then I'm reading Arthur Conan Doyle. Or there's a lot of great literature, but he's actually one of the characters she meets. So that was a great character to, to read and get a sense of him as well as being steeped in that kind of literature. Or for 
no soldier spy. I was reading a lot of 19th century, you know, American literature. So it basically keeps you true to what that character would be thinking about so that you don't make that slip that's anachronistic. So it's a, it's a fine line. And I have a series of historical journals where it's told from the, the main character's point of view because it's a diary. And the, there are characters from 1700s Boston and from turn of the century America, from there's a pioneer girl. So for all of those books, partly I do a lot of revisions and part of the revision is just finding the voice. It's finding a voice that's true to the character that fits the time period because it, that is one of the hardest parts of writing, I think. And so I might write the whole book and then rewrite it in a different voice. And it changes the personality. It's interesting, actually an interesting exercise to do. See what happens when you tilt the voice a different way. And you, can, you really make a difference. It's a totally different book. But I did that for, um, for Rachel's journal, the, which was my first historical diary when she is a pioneer girl going west. And I had a hard time getting her voice right. And I read a ton of pioneer diaries. That was a lot of the research for that book. And there's a, there's a lot that you can read that's not published because I happen to live in Berkeley and Berkeley has a fabulous library and a rare books collection in which a lot of diaries were just deposited. When the pioneers came over here, they end up in Berkeley and they gave their diaries, their family's diaries to the Bancroft. So you can read, you can hold in your hands these hand lettered, some of them have watercolor paintings in them, these journals of pioneers. And I was reading particularly the ones that were done by kids. And there were a bunch done by kids because normally what's published is what's done by men. There's some that are done, a lot done by women as well. But I was particularly interested in the kids' perspective because that made a huge difference. And that was illuminating because if you read a man's journal or man's diary, there's a lot of concern and worry because he's in charge of people's safety. He wants to make sure everybody gets there safely. The women, it's a different kind of journey because they're also very attuned to what's going on socially, who's talking to who, what's going on with that family besides caring for their kids. And for the kids, it was like, it's a holiday. There's no school. For them, there was not this sense of danger. They weren't scared. I mean, there were scary moments, but it wasn't this sense of the Oregon Trail as this horrible thing that they had to dread. It was a big adventure, and they were having a lot of fun. And that's what I wanted to capture. So that was a voice that I got from reading the kids' journals, which I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. The voice of a character can also be found right in your own head, as was the case for Marissa's long-running series of books featuring Amelia a young girl whose life is highly reminiscent of the author's. When I first wrote Amelia, it looks like a kid's notebook. It basically, I wrote and drew it in a composition book because it was based on the notebook I had when I was a kid. And I got the idea when I was buying school supplies for my son and I thought like, oh wow, I did a notebook like this when I was a kid. What's gonna, maybe this could be a book. And I wrote and drew what I remembered and Amelia's what came out. And I, what I wanted was to be able to go back and forth between words and pictures because I've been doing conventional picture books, which are very separate. I mean, the text is separate. You write the text and then you do the art. But I think in words sometimes and I think in pictures other times and I wanted to be able to go back and forth in my storytelling that way. And the notebook allowed me to do that. But when I sent it to publishers, I've been working with, I think, four or five different ones by then, nobody wanted it because they thought it was just too weird. It was an odd hybrid. They said, what is this? It's not a picture book. It's not a novel. No one's going to know where to shelve it. The librarians won't know how to catalog it. We just can't do it. And it took a, a weirdo small press in Berkeley, which had just started, Tricycle Press, which was the children's division of 10-speed. Because, you know, if you're big, you ride a 10-speed. If you're little, you ride a tricycle. Very clever. Um, they didn't know better. They took a chance on Amelia. And Amelia sold really, really well. I didn't know that I was going to do more of them. But there are now, I think, over 30 Amelia books. The first 10 years of Amelia, she's in elementary school. 
And those, for those books, I would say the readers are from second grade to sixth grade. And then there are 10 years of middle school, which is why she's finally graduating, because really 10 years of middle school is enough for anybody. Uh, and those are for older readers. Those are more for 10 to 14, 15. Although I get, I get mail from young women in college who grew up reading Amelia who still read Amelia, which is very sweet. They're reading out of nostalgia, I think, obviously. But the point of Amelia is basically to, to do a book that kids feel relates to their lives because not, Amelia's a completely ordinary kid because she's based on me. I wasn't a great athlete or you know, honor student or whatever. I was just a normal kid, totally boring. But what's interesting about her notebook is her point of view and her sense of humor. And that's what kids relate to. Anybody can keep a notebook like Amelia. And a lot of kids start writing and drawing because they, Amelia makes them see it's possible. And that's what I was hoping for. So it's really, she gets in, I get inside, I should say she said, I get inside a kid's head. And she's relatable to a lot of kids. So that's knowing your age group. And when people ask, how do you know that age group so well? And I think I just have a really vivid memory of my childhood. With a final piece of advice, Marissa has some great advice on where to begin your story in finding a subject that inspires you. There are a lot of interesting people to write about, but you have to choose carefully. And one of the things I look for is somebody who has real historical value, someone whose story has not been told, because history generally is written by the winners, and it's written by mostly white men. So there's a lot of there are a lot of interesting people that history's overlooked, and those are, the, those are the nuggets, the stories I really want to get at. But they've got to be more than just interesting aberrations. They have to really have, I think, lasting value, because a picture book is a book that's going to be read over and over and over again. So you want the people that you're writing about to be people who really can bring something into a kid's life. And in some ways, to me, they're all my heroes. They're my heroes, so I want them to be heroes for kids. So they really have to be one of these bigger-than-life people and, you know, it's not hard to find those people. There are actually a lot of them. It's just kind of keeping your eyes and ears open and seeing that person. That was extraordinary. I want to write about them. Hopefully that's given you just the right amount of inspiration to go out and write your own book. And if you're interested more about children's book illustration or illustration in general, check out our episode with illustrator and children's book author Julie Downing. And if you never want to miss an episode of our podcast, just hit the subscribe button. And one last question. Have you ever dreamed of a career in art and design? As more and more art and design career opportunities arise, employers are on the hunt for the next generation of talented and skilled creative professionals. At Academy of Art University, you will get the work-ready skills that employers want. You can study on-site in downtown San Francisco or anywhere in the world with our online programs. To request info about our 40-plus areas of study in art and design, including game development, fashion design, photography, even UX design, just visit our website at academyart.edu slash creativemind.